You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. In M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village, the entire story focuses around this group of people that are living in a primitive American puritanical society inside, guess what? A village, thus the movie's name. And in this village, there's stories about the, this monster that lives out in the woods around the village. And so it's very important that no one ever leaves the safety or the context of that village until someone does. And she finds herself going through the woods. And in the big turn of the story, what you find out is that she breaks through the, the opening of the woods. There's a road. And as she crosses the road, she walks into the modern society in which we live now, with all the roads, all the technology, everything that her village didn't have is going on all around this village in which they lived. And you find out that basically the elders of this village had early in their lives decided that they were going to create a society in which they could protect everyone on the inside and keep them away from all of the things going on in the world around them. And so for the people that grew up inside of the village... There was an entire world around them that they had no idea existed. For their entire lives, they believed that the whole world looked this one way. And through the entirety of that movie, up until about two-thirds of the way through, we're led as the viewers to believe that this is just a period piece about people living in a distant time in a different culture. But in reality, they're living in a space completely separated from the rest of the world around them and had no idea of the greater reality that existed. And sometimes that's how we live. We see our lives. We see our stories. We even see the course of human history on the surface, and that's it. Even when we look at Scripture, we have a tendency to look at the things that take place from Genesis all the way through Revelation as purely historical or informational, only seeing what takes place and never looking beyond to a different reality. But then in comes the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation reminds us of the existence of a world beyond what our eyes can see. A reality that exists all around us, whether we realize it or not. That while we exist in kind of a physical world and everything that we recognize is surface level and physical, Scripture now reminds us that there is a spiritual reality all around us every single moment of every single day. And as we get to Revelation chapter 12, as we've seen all the buildup of these seals and prophecies, these trumpets of God's judgment, of all the things that will come, all the things that have already taken place, now here in the very center of this book, we have Revelation chapter 12, which is a very unique passage. Because in this chapter, we see the whole narrative of redemption on display. We see the whole story of the Bible, of God's plan to redeem and restore his creation and his people. We see all of that take place in one seemingly figurative, but I think a better way to describe this chapter is a very spiritual presentation of everything that takes place throughout the rest of scripture. And so we get to see God's plan of redemption from a different heavenly spiritual perspective. And so to help us understand this, we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. 
So instead of just cranking through this and talking about what every passage means, I'm going to have some help. I've got some people that are going to come and they're going to read these passages that come out of Revelation chapter 12. And as they do, we're going to talk about the whole narrative of Scripture and see how this passage of Scripture helps give us spiritual context for everything that we see over the course of the entire Bible. And so because the passage is going to be read all the way through the sermon, I'm not going to read it as a whole now. But I'm just going to ask in advance that God would add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. And we all say, thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we just thank you that you are bigger than we could ever imagine. And that this plan that you have to restore us isn't just about a physical restoration, even though you care about us physically. It's not just about the recreation of your world to be what it was meant to be, even though it does include that. That God, you not only care for us physically, mentally, and emotionally, but you care for us spiritually. And that God, as each passing season of this world moves by, the things that we take for granted, the things that we don't look too deeply into. God, we thank you that the book of Revelation reminds us that there's more going on than meets the eye. That this world is constantly immersed in spiritual conflict and spiritual triumph. And that behind each thing that was taking place here in your world, God, things were taking place in heaven too that coincided so perfectly. And so, God, I guess my prayer for this morning is that you teach us to be a people that are heavenly minded. That you teach us to recognize the spiritual reality that exists all around us by seeing this beautiful, spiritual, apocalyptic picture of your big story of how you're bringing salvation into the world through Christ and how you're going to carry out the mission of the gospel through your church. So, Father, we do ask that you speak through the reading of your word. Help us to see it, understand it, and recognize it in its fullness. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This is Revelations 12, 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he did, as we looked early on in the passages in Genesis that we studied at the beginning of this year, the earth was dark and it was formless and it was empty. And yet God's spirit was moving and God was creating. And so to rectify the darkness, God said, let there be light and there was light. And then to govern that light, God appointed luminaries in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars that were going to meter out the days, the seasons, the years, and all the things that would take place over the course of human history. But also God filled the earth with creatures of all different kinds. And the pinnacle of that creation, Genesis tells us, is us. As God sings a song in Genesis chapter 1 over the creation of humanity, he says that he's going to create us in his own image. 
It says, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And then he gave them a commandment. He told his people that he created in his world to be fruitful and multiply, to make more of you, to go and have babies and fill the earth with the image of God's glory and God's wonder. And so we see the hope of humanity from the very beginning of the passage coming in the birth of children. And so they did. They were fruitful and they multiplied and spread all over the world. And then God comes to one particular man, a man named Abram. And he says, hey man, I have a plan for you. A big, awesome plan, but it's not just for you, but I'm gonna make you into a great nation that through the birth of your child, a blessing is gonna come, not just to you and your family, but to the entire world. And even though you're old, And even though your wife is old, you are going to bear a child of promise. And that child is going to bring about the hope that will one day bless the nations. And sure enough, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have a child. That child is named Isaac. And he and his wife give birth to two children, Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob has a bunch of kids. And all those kids go on to represent the people of God. But one of those kids has a dream. And one day he talks to his brothers. This is a weird thing to say to your brothers, but it's fine. He says, behold, I have dreamed another dream. And they're all like, awesome. We're really excited to hear another dream about how you're better than us. He says, behold, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And of course, his brothers became angry. And this starts a chain of events that lead Joseph into a very good place in life eventually after a lot of really difficult things. But then just one generation after that, after he has this vision of sun and moon and stars and all of these things that we see in Revelation as well as Genesis, God's people find themselves in captivity and in slavery inside of Egypt. But God continues his plan. He calls men like Moses and Joshua to lead God's people out of slavery, out of captivity. And this land, this promise that he had given to Abraham, he takes Joshua and all of those people and leads them into that place of promise. But even then, there's a knowledge in their minds that they're still waiting for something better that there's still a promise of a child to come. There's still a promise of a Messiah to come, a better Joshua who's going to lead the people of God into a better promised land. And so as the people find themselves inside the land of promise, they're looking for a better inheritance, a better promised land, and a better promised child. Verses two through four, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and seven horns and on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. There's a reason God's people need hope and deliverance here at this point in history. Because we've already seen that they were in captivity, that they were enslaved, but there was a much deeper, much more difficult problem going on there. 
Because in Genesis chapter 3, we see the introduction of a new figure. That the book of Genesis describes as a serpent in the midst of God's good garden. Later on in this passage in Revelation, we're going to see an explanation of that. As John writes in verse 9 that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, here making this connection that even in the beginning, as God is developing and growing this people, there is an enemy in their midst. And inside the garden, we see this picture of sin. This representation of sin entering God's good and perfect creation and God's people start to follow the lies and the temptations of their enemy and their adversary. And then we see this growth of sin, the fall of God's people and a curse laid on the entirety of creation and the problems caused by that serpent start to spread all over the world. And we see through that, the sinful power rise up through fallen humanity. And as that develops, so too develop the enemies of God, not just spiritual, but physical. And as God takes his people out of captivity in Egypt, we see more enemies arise over and over and over and over again. And the people of God come out of slavery. They go into that promised land and things start to go well for a little while. They build a kingdom. They have kings like Saul and David and Jonathan, or excuse me, and Solomon. But then within just a few generations of that kingdom being established, the kingdom divides and it begins to crumble. And the people of God find themselves in the midst of exile. They find themselves surrounded by the powers of darkness, by the powers of evil. They find themselves surrounded by the devil and his armies, both physical and spiritual, coming in, trying to pull them away from the God who called them to be something more than they were. And as the Old Testament comes to a close, it does so on a difficult and painful note. The people of God crying out in agony. The people of God broken and sorrowful, longing for the Messiah to come, this one that had been promised. And the heir felt pregnant with this desire to see God come in and work and deliver his people out of this exile and bring them back into who they were supposed to be because of their sin, because of their shame, because of their brokenness. They were desperate to see God's salvation. And so the prophets of the Old Testament began to say things a lot like some of the things that are prophesied here in Revelation, saying, unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is given. And so the people clung tight to that hope. They clung tight to that longing, desperate to see God move and bring his salvation into the world through a son like the Son of Man. Verses 5 through 6, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And this is where we get the picture of the gospel, 
of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We see this promise come to this young woman who was called out among this group of people that God had identified as his chosen people to bring salvation into the world. This young woman is approached by an angel of God and he says, you are gonna bear a child and his name is gonna be Emmanuel, God with us. This hope that you've been promised This Messiah that you've been waiting for, it's time for him to be born into the world and you are gonna be the one through whom God brings salvation to all people. And so in a night, tucked away in an inn, the son of God was born into creation and he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men. And he began to walk around the countryside preaching about the kingdom of God and making a declaration that the kingdom of God that we saw opened up last week at the last part of Revelation chapter 11. He says that kingdom is the temple of God was open and the Ark of the Covenant was revealed and God's kingdom is among his people now. He says, I am that one. I am the king of the kingdom. I'm bringing the kingdom with me and the kingdom of God is now in your midst. And Jesus being in going about showing people what it looks like in a world when God is king, where sins are forgiven, the blind are given back their sight, the dead are raised again. But then Jesus comes to accomplish his ultimate purpose as he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, as he's put on trial for crimes that he didn't commit, as he was beaten, humiliated, and tortured, and then nailed to a criminal's cross and breathed his last. But as we know, that's not the end of the story. Because three days later, Christ rose from the dead to seal that promise, that hope that he came to accomplish through not just his death for the forgiveness of sins, but through the resurrection of life that he now shares with anyone who would follow after him. And then he goes about preaching and teaching more about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And then with all the people gathered around together, Jesus ascends into heaven, goes up on the clouds to be with God. And he leaves them with the reminder of, yes, I came to establish God's kingdom here and now, but there's so much more to come. And he gives them a commission. He gives them a job to do. And then he goes to be with God. And so we see this picture of the child born to rule the nations, but was taken up to God. And we're left with a kingdom established, but still in the midst of waiting. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. During Jesus' ministry, there's this really powerful scene. Because he was going around preaching about the kingdom of God, and as he did, he started to call to himself disciples. People that were going to follow after him people that were going to learn from him, people in which he was going to entrust the rest of that kingdom work after his ascension. And so he decides to give them a little practice. And he sends out a large group of these disciples to go and to preach about the kingdom of God in different towns and villages. 
He says, as you go, if you find a town that receives you and receives your message, then go in and spend some time and share the message of the gospel with them and invest in this town. But if they reject you, then just walk out the front gate and knock the dirt off of your boots. And as they start coming back, they begin to give reports about all the things that God was doing as they were preaching about the kingdom of God. And Jesus looks at them and his response to all these messages about the kingdom is that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he wasn't speaking metaphorically. And Revelation opens this picture here as we see this great battle between the forces of God, the forces of God's plan, of God's message of goodness, of the gospel hope that's brought through Jesus Christ, making war against the enemy, against the tempter, against this dragon and this portrayal. And we see this picture here of this ancient serpent cast down out of the presence of God. And so as the good news of the kingdom was going out, and bringing restoration to these places of darkness and brokenness. As the message of the gospel of Jesus was going and people were following after Christ and trusting in Jesus, we see this picture that the accuser of God's people was literally cast out of God's domain. And so it's important to recognize here that when we do the work of the church, when we take the gospel message out, when we share the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and the hope that anyone can have of putting their faith in Jesus and the salvation that brings, when we go out doing the work of the kingdom, of caring for widows and orphans, of loving people that are in need and giving our lives for the good of others and for the glory of God, this is the power that it has. And it's not just something that's done on a temporal, physical plane, but literally we are fighting off the forces of sin and darkness and the powers of hell. This is the power of the kingdom of God. This is the power of the church. This is the power of the gospel. Uh, verses 10 through 11 say, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony, they for love, not for their lives, even unto death. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, we see Jesus on the verge of ascension. And he's given his last instructions to the church. And he tells them, you're going to go out and you're going to be my witnesses all over the world. You're going to be the ambassadors of the kingdom everywhere that you go. It's going to start here in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But he tells them that they're not going to do this alone, right? Because as Christ is preparing to ascend, a helper is coming. And Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be my witnesses. And here in that passage, we see this loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. And we see God gift the church with this power to go out and to take the gospel everywhere that they go. And then we would do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter gets up and he preaches that first Christian message. 
declaring the good news of Christ, his death and his resurrection and the hope of anyone who would believe in him. And on that day, thousands of people gave their lives to Christ, followed after Jesus in salvation. And we see the birth of the church. And they begin meeting together, passionate about the apostles' teachings and the gospel, dedicated to spending time in prayer and seeking after the power of the Holy Spirit. They were sharing everything together, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, both spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and even physically when necessary. They were participating in baptism. They were participating in the communion meal that God had given them to find that strength and nourishment to continue going and doing what Christ had called them to do. And then they got to work not staying huddled up in their masses, but going out and preaching the good news of the kingdom. And all through the book of Acts, we see the triumph of the gospel. This small group of people that started with just Jesus and a few men that he called to follow him and then spreading into this movement and now reaching all over the world. Even seeing Paul taking the gospel, not just into that region, but going into places like Africa and Asia and even Europe, taking the gospel as far as he could reach. And we just see victory after victory after victory and the triumph of God's people as they continue to trample down the enemy and conquering, not by sword, not by power or might, but by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony of what Christ had done for them. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. There was a moment in Jesus' ministry when he was approached by some of the religious leaders who are constantly trying to cause Jesus to fall, cause Jesus to stumble, cause Jesus to mess up, or prove that he wasn't really who he said he was. And so at one point, they come to Jesus and they start making accusations, not physical, not even on the things that he was teaching, but on the spiritual nature of who he was. And they said, this guy, he works with the devil. He must be demonic. Look at the things that he's able to do. Look at the things that he's able to accomplish. He must work for Satan. But Jesus looks at him. He says, not quite. In fact, quite the opposite is true. And he gives them this analogy. He says, it's like there's a strong man in a house and nobody has the ability to go in and take that strong man's possessions from him because no one is strong enough to stand against him unless someone stronger than he is able to come. He says, I'm that guy. I'm the one stronger than the enemy in the garden. I'm the one stronger than the dragon in heaven. I'm the one stronger than the accuser of God's people and the enemy of God himself. And so Jesus says, I'm the one that comes into that strong man's home and I bind him and I take his stuff because he has no power. He can't stand against me. But there's an important thing to recognize in that story. As Jesus talks about what he does to the powers of hell, as Jesus talks about what he does to Satan, he says, yes, he was cast out from heaven. And yes, he's bound now in his own domain, but he's not destroyed. And this passage here reminds us of the gravity of that. It says, woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. 
And so as Jesus gives us this picture of this bound, wounded enemy, we have to remember that a wounded animal is a dangerous one. And even though Satan's time is short and limited and we have this promise that Christ is going to return to make all things right and all things new, for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, he's allowed him to still move and do his work and do his job. And so he has great wrath stored up inside of him for all of God's people because he knows that his time is short. Verses 13 and 14. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. In the book of Acts, we have this picture of the gospel going out and God's people being put down. Remember, In this passage here, it says that they were conquering by the word of their testimony, as we saw earlier, but they were willing to lose their lives for the sake of Christ. They were willing to give everything for what Jesus had called them to do. And so many of them did. As we look and we see all of those apostles that Jesus appointed to carry out the ministry of the church, all of them except one died a martyr's death. That one who did not was writing this book in exile and lived the rest of his life in exile away from his home. As followers of Christ began to grow and their numbers began to grow and these missionaries began to go out preaching the good news of the gospel, they found themselves in the midst of widespread persecution, both religious and political facing difficulties on every side and being imprisoned, being tortured and beaten and even being killed for their faith in Christ. And so we have this picture of both physical rage and spiritual rage as the enemies of God come after his people. And yet, with all of that taking place, with the martyrdom, with these early Christians knowing brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers who lost their lives for the cause of the gospel, still the church was not only able to survive, but was able to grow and to thrive. And as we've seen over the course of the last 2,000 years, periods where Christianity has felt a little more comfortable and Christianity has felt much more difficult. And even all around the world now, we've talked about this so many times, there are some Christians who find themselves in a place of ease and comfort, But for most Christians around the world, they find themselves in a place where they are being persecuted, imprisoned, and even killed for their faith. And yet it's in some of those very places in our world now that the gospel is taking root and growing and thriving more than anywhere else. And it's because we have this reminder and this promise that even though Christianity may cost some followers greatly, and the gospel may cost us everything that we have physically, or materialistically, there's this promise here in this passage that God is going to care for his people represented by this woman as she's nourished from time, times, and half a time. This language that we've seen multiple times in the book of Revelation now to describe the full time that God allows the church to exist and move. And so as long as God has a purpose and a ministry for the church in this world, he is gonna protect us and provide for us and keep the message of the gospel going out into the world no matter how much the enemy may rage against us. Verse 15. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood to the sand of the sea. When we look especially at the Old Testament, the imagery of water is one that's used in a lot of cases to invoke fear and to represent chaos. Even in Genesis chapter one, this picture of the world when it was formless and dark and empty, it says that waters covered the face of the deep and water for so long has been pictured as this thing that, that can't be controlled. And yet God was hovering over the chaos, holding it all in place. And now here we see this picture of the enemy of God, the serpent pouring water like a river out of its mouth to sweep away God's people trying to use fear and chaos to derail the mission of the church and the ministry of the gospel. But this passage is so amazing because it shows that the earth came to help the woman. The creation itself came to help God's people in the church and swallowed up that fear and that chaos and that brokenness that would come against her. And this enrages the enemy. The more the enemy tries to conquer the people of God, the more the enemy tries to stop the spread of the gospel and is thwarted, he becomes more and more and more angry. And so the final picture here is the dragon standing on the edge of chaos, on the edge of fear, ready to unleash the fullness of his power against those who keep the commandments of God. And that's what we're going to look at next week. As we see, over the past several weeks, we've looked at some physical enemies, physical kingdoms that would try to rise against God, and now we're going to see the one that comes against God and his people spiritually. But here in this passage, we see the whole of human history, the whole of the biblical narrative all summed up to reveal its full spiritual context. And this is a reminder that God is not only sovereign over history, that he not only works all things throughout this world to his plan, but also that everything that happens in our world has spiritual and eternal consequences. And we have to learn to realize that we are surrounded by a world beyond our imaginations and that our salvation, our hope, and our eternal security was not only one for us here on earth, but also in heaven. Not only one for us spiritually through Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection, but also spiritually as God used Christ and all the work that he did to topple the forces of hell, to break the power that sin has over our lives, the sin that we introduced and brought on ourselves. Jesus came in to spiritually break those chains and set us free so that we could live as a people who are not only set free physically, but also spiritually. And so we need to learn to be a people who live spiritually aware in the midst of a physical world. Because we have this promise at the end of Revelation that one day those two are gonna be one again. That God is gonna bring his spiritual heavenly temple to earth and the presence of God is gonna be with his people and we are gonna dwell with him forever, body, soul, mind, and spirit. And so we need to learn that as we do earthly good, as we care for those in need, as we minister for the sake of the gospel, that we are also serving God spiritually, and that we are loving and caring for the
person as a whole, knowing that everything that we do here and now has eternal spiritual significance. We're not alone. We need to stop living in this little village afraid of what's beyond and recognize that, yes, there are real powers outside of us. The Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these powers and principalities on the spiritual realm. And so we need to be aware of all of those things going on and taking place so that we can be preparing spiritually for the work that God has called us to do. So let's just pray now. God would help us to have those kind of heavenly eyes to focus on not just things physical and temporal, but on things eternal and spiritual. Because we're going to see over the next couple weeks, the enemies that, that we war against now are much deeper and much more difficult than any physical enemy that could come against God's church. As these spiritual enemies of God's church are trying to vie for our attention, trying to tempt us into worshiping other gods and to tempt us into living a life that is so contrary to what God has called us to do and to find our security anywhere else but Him so that we will use our lives not for the sake of the gospel, but for our own glorification and out of fear and chaos. So Father God, we just ask that you help us to see with your eyes. It can be so easy for us to live our lives with blinders on, just looking at the surface of things without remembering spiritual reality God I pray as we remember our salvation that we be so thankful for the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection that promises us the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body as Paul says we've been made alive in Christ if we've trusted in Jesus that our spirits are made alive inside of us and so now we live in a hope knowing that you've restored us spiritually and that you will one day restore us physically as well and so God help our gospel ministry to be physical and spiritual that we would care for the people that you've placed around us as a whole that we would know that we have received power to be your witnesses to go and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to care for those in need, to meet the physical needs and provide as best we can for those who are hurting and broken physically and emotionally and mentally. But God, that we would never lose sight also of our spiritual responsibilities, to share the gospel, to give life to people that are spiritually dead, to give an eternal hope in a world that feels so temporary and finite. So God, we just pray that we wouldn't be like Peter before the crucifixion of Jesus, thinking only about what's here and now, but that you would help us to see our spiritual eyes with eternity on our hearts and salvation on our lips. God, we thank you for all that you do. We just pray that you would be glorified in all things, and we ask this in the name of Jesus.